fall. Today, I'm going to talk about baptism from Romans chapter 6 to prepare us for baptism next week. And then the week after that, we're doing a standalone sermon. And then this fall, we're going to do a sermon series called Why? Like, why do we take communion? Why do we preach? Why do we sing and really dive into God's word on some of these things that we do as a church that sometimes we forget why we do them? And some of you who are newer may not understand. Why do we even stand and sing? That's an awkward thing to do. Like, what other setting in the world do people just stand and sing together unless it's like Skull at a Vikings game? And uh, which isn't that fun anyway. They always disappoint, so... Um, <laughs> So we're going to do that this fall, and then we'll get back into the book of Matthew later on. So we're going to pause Matthew chapter 12, which we finished last week, kind of transitions from Jesus' miracles and, and his calling people to, to come and follow him, to be his disciples and apprentices, into Matthew 13, where there's a bunch of parables and explanations. So we'll pick that up again later on. But for today, we're going to look at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, as we talk about baptism. And so my wife, Brittany, is going to read that passage for us. We stand for the reading of God's word, Romans chapter 6 on page 942, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Thanks, Brittany. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word that you've spoken to us. Lord, I pray that as we look at this word, as we dig into it this morning, that it would come alive to us. You have told us that that your word is living and active, and so I ask that you would make this come alive to us, Lord, that we would know what this truth means in our head, that we would believe it in our heart, but that we would feel it, that we would experience it with all of our being for we have been made new. So God, make this come alive to us this morning. Help us to experience and to feel and to believe our new birth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may have a seat. Well, I had a unique experience this weekend where I got to do my fourth Ragnar run. How many of you have heard of the Ragnar run? Put your hand up nice and high couple of you. Those of you who did the Ragnar run with me, put your hand up nice and high. Hey, we're here. You guys are amazing. You woke up, you came to church. Those of you who don't know what Ragnar is, you leave on Friday morning at, what time did the first van leave? 5 a.m.? 6.30? And we ran from Minneapolis all the way up to Duluth. We ran from Minneapolis to Duluth. We 
We drove vans, but we played leapfrog. It's a relay race where you have a little wristband and you slap it on somebody's wrist. They run for anywhere from three to 10 miles, and the next person takes the wrist, and then they run, and the van drives and picks them up. And so I've done this for four years now with a group of people from our church. It's an amazing thing, but you get no sleep, and you eat terrible food, and you're with, like, a couple thousand crazy adults who are acting like they're children and adult, like they're still in their adolescent stages. And um, I don't know why we do it, but we love it and we keep doing it year after year. And so this year was the first year that we went from Minneapolis to Duluth. Usually we go from Winona to St. Paul, but they switched the route this year. And so we went from Minneapolis to Duluth. And throughout the time, we stopped at a bunch of small towns south of Duluth that I spent my high school years playing baseball in. And so we're stopping in all these small little towns that my high school from Grand Marais, Cook County High School, we would drive three hours for baseball games. And I hadn't really been through these towns since high school. And so it was kind of cathartic for me to drive through these towns and remember, I played on that baseball field. I had this experience in this town. I, I had a terrible game here. I had a really good game here and kind of recount all of that. And, and as I did, I was, I was profoundly reminded of this this defining moment in my life playing baseball as a high schooler. See, I was in 10th grade, and we had a bunch of seniors on the baseball team, and, and I had been put on the varsity team, and I was starting to play a little bit. Uh, but as a 10th grader playing with a bunch of seniors who were really good, really good athletes, I was a little bit insecure about my own ability to perform. And so there was a game where one of my good friends was pitching. It was one of his last games on the team, and I was playing shortstop, and I made five errors. That means every ball that was hit to me, I screwed up. I got no outs. And so I had gotten very insecure in my position as the shortstop, thinking, I can't play at this level. I don't measure up. I can't play with the big boys, right? And, uh, and so for the rest of the season, coach had kind of moved me over to second base, and we had, you know, I, I was just working through this insecurity of if I was able to play this position or not at this level. And I remember this moment very clear. It happened in one of these small towns that I ran through this weekend. We had a doubleheader, and the other guy who played shortstop, he was going to pitch the second game of the doubleheader. I pitched the first game, and then he was going to pitch the second game. And so my question to my coach was, who's going to play shortstop? You know, I'm, I'm thinking through in my mind, well, the guy who usually plays shortstop is going to pitch. That means we need somebody to play shortstop, and I'm too afraid to play shortstop because last time I played shortstop, I made five errors. It's in my head. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be publicly humiliated on the baseball field again. And I remember my coach looking at me and saying, you're my shortstop, so you can move over to second base and, and keep playing second base, but I just want you to know, Andrew, I see you as my shortstop, and you always will be for the next two years. So are you ready to step into that position or not? Because that's your position. And I remember that moment was so defining for me. It was a defining moment to experience this life-changing reality, this life-changing truth. And I say life-changing, it was kind of life-changing for a couple of years, right? Let's keep in mind, it was high school baseball, so I'm, I'm not trying to like relive the glory days here. But I remember that moment. It was a defining moment for me for the next couple of years of my high school, of this, this kind of life-changing truth that my coach saw me as something that I was too insecure to step into. That, that he saw me in a greater light than I saw myself, that, that my fears, my doubts, my insecurities kept me from stepping into something that he believed I could do. And really, as we look at this passage this morning, that's what baptism is. Baptism is a defining moment to a life-changing truth. 
that we have been united with Christ. And so there's all these different understandings of baptism, all these different experiences of baptism. Some of you know a lot about baptism. You've had different experiences. Maybe you were baptized as an infant and you're thinking through what, why this church doesn't baptize infants, why we're going to baptize believers next week. Or maybe some of you are newer to the church world and you have no idea what baptism is. And so before we do it next week, I really want to just stop and I want to dig into this Romans 6 passage and unpack what baptism is. And here's the big idea. It is a defining moment. It's a, it's a moment to declare this life-changing truth that we are united with Christ. We sang it this morning in the first song that we sang. We sang this phrase, one with him I cannot die. What does that mean? Why do we sing songs like that? What does that phrase, one with him I cannot die, mean? What does it mean that we are united with Christ? The reality of our union with Christ, the, the doctrine of union with Christ is one of my all-time favorite Christian doctrines. I think it is my favorite Christian doctrine, and yet we rarely talk about it. I have to confess, I, I forget to preach about it. I forget to teach on it, and I forget to counsel people with it. When people come to me with life issues, I rarely use the term, you are united with Christ. Remember your union with Christ, and yet it's foundational to us walking in new life with Jesus. And so today I want to dig into this idea of union with Christ. What does it mean for us to be united with him, and how does baptism demonstrate that union? What is the point and purpose of baptism? So before we get into Romans chapter 6 specifically, I want to just touch on a few things that baptism is not. We read in Romans chapter 6 that baptism is a sign of our union with Christ. So first I want to dismantle baptism because we all have different experiences of it and different assumptions of it. Baptism is not done merely out of tradition. And this was profoundly, this was made profoundly real to me when a couple years ago, Brittany and I were talking with our neighbors. Our neighbors had a kid and then they had a second kid. When we moved into our first home in St. Louis Park, our neighbor's kid was, was old enough that their first kid had already been baptized, but then they had a second kid. And they, they, have a, they have a church tradition where when a kid is born, you baptize that kid within the first couple weeks or months of their life. And so we were talking with our neighbors about this and and I'm a pastor, right? So every Sunday morning, Brittany and I get up and come to church because I have to get in my hour of work for the week. And so they always see us head off to church and, and they never left to church on a Sunday morning ever. Like they're sitting out in the yard having a good time on Sunday mornings when we come home from church. And, and, but it comes time for them to baptize their kid. And so that Sunday morning, they go to church. And so Brittany and I are talking with them about that and we're like, hey, congratulations on baptizing your son. We're, we're really excited for you guys. Why'd you do that? What does it mean? And they're like, ah, it's just tradition. I mean, that, that was what they said. They, they, they said, we, we are what we call CEOs. I'm like, what does that mean? And they said, it means we go to church on Christmas and Easter only. CEOs. We're, they were self-proclaimed CEOs, Christmas and Easter only. Oh, and then baptism. We, we went when we baptized our two kids, but... Church, that's kind of how we view church, and many people view baptism this way. I mean, I, I'm friends with a lot of people who don't commonly and consistently attend a, a church family, and I will see, at least once or twice a year, I will see friends of mine posting pictures of them at church for their, for their baptism of their new kid, but, but they're nowhere to be seen throughout the rest of the year. And so I want you to know that at our church, at Park Community Church, we don't baptize out of tradition. 
when you, when you have a kid, you don't just kind of go through this ritual and this rite, this church tradition. That's not what baptism is intended to be. And if you grew up in that tradition and if you still believe in that tradition, I'm really glad that you're here and we don't want you to feel condemned or shunned for the tradition that you've grown up in. But that's not what baptism is. If we think of baptism as a tradition, that is sincerely and severely limiting what baptism is. Secondly, baptism isn't done to please others. It's not done because a church leader has pressured you or you feel pressure from family. Maybe you've, you've had new kids and you feel pressure from family to baptize your kids. Or maybe you've been in groups where other people are getting baptized and you kind of feel this outward, this, this pressure from other people to please them and to be baptized to kind of fulfill this religious standard or tradition. That's not what baptism is. And lastly, baptism is not done as a means of salvation. Baptism does not save us from our sins. Baptism has no saving property. There's no saving element to being baptized. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Baptism is merely a response to the work that Jesus has done for us. And so I know I wanted to just spend a few minutes kind of clearing that up because I know in this room there's many different experiences of baptism, many different traditions. And I want you to know as we go into next week baptizing people what we, what we believe baptism isn't here at our church. And there's biblical reason for this and we'll get into that in just a minute. So then what is baptism? If that's what baptism is not, let's talk about what baptism is. And we're going to go through these bullet points one by one this morning. First of all, baptism is done to imitate Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, I'm going to flip to some of these passages and not all of these passages. I'm not going to flip to Matthew chapter 3 this morning, but you can jot it down and look at it yourself later. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 3, and we preached this months ago in probably January when we were starting Matthew, Jesus went into the waters to be baptized. It's this amazing picture where Jesus goes to John the Baptist and, and he asks John the Baptist to baptize him. And John the Baptist is like, I'm not going to baptize you. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. And Jesus says, I must do this to fulfill all righteousness. And so John takes Jesus. Jesus is 29, 30 years old here. His public ministry is about to begin. And, and John takes Jesus and he immerses him. He dunks him into the water and brings him up. And the voice of God comes down from heaven and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased about Jesus. And, and a dove, Jesus sees a dove descending. He sees the Holy Spirit descending like a dove upon him. It's this beautiful picture. Jesus himself was baptized as, as a conscious adult wanting to submit to God's ways. And so we do baptism to imitate Jesus. And the second reason we do baptism is we do it out of obedience to his commands. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, it's called the, the Great Commission. We talk about it often at our church. Jesus commissions his disciples at, at the end of his ministry, before he's about to ascend back into heaven. He tells his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he tells his disciples, so I, I Jesus, have all authority in heaven and on earth. And he says, therefore, because all authority has give, been given to me, and, and I've shared that authority with you, I've handed that authority off to you, we've seen that throughout the book of Matthew, therefore, now, because I have all authority and I've shared that authority with you, go and make disciples, go and make followers of Jesus among all the nations, baptizing them, dunking them, immersing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, baptizing them and teaching them all teaching them to obey all of my commands. 
And so baptism, really what it means, baptism means to be immersed or to be surrounded or to be dunked or submerged. And so really Jesus is saying, I want anyone who follows me to be immersed in the life of the Trinity. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So to be a Christian, it means that we are immersed into the life of the Trinity, that we are included into this loving relationship that God has, that we are, that we are submerged, that we are surrounded by God. Is that good news, church? You're not alone. You are not left to your flesh and to the fleshly people around you. But you've actually, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've been immersed, you've been baptized into a loving relationship with God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the word picture there in Matthew is this immersion into the life of God. But then there's this practical component of that, that we go into the water and we are submerged or immersed into the water as a sign of that relationship that God has created with us, that God has spurred on with us. The third thing here is baptism is done by immersing professing believers into water as a response to belief in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. So again, baptism isn't for salvation. Baptism is a result of salvation. Baptism is a step of obedience to faith in following Jesus. Baptism, it comes from the Greek word baptizo, which simply means to dunk or to immerse or to surround so I think we see some powerful pictures of this here in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 8. So if you flip there with me, let's look at Acts chapter 2. And I want us to understand what baptism practically then is. Spiritually, our big idea is that baptism is a defining moment to declare a life-changing reality that you are united with Christ. It's, it's the symbol of our union with Christ, but practically here's Here's how it's done, and here who is to do it. So in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 36, the context here is that Peter, Jesus has ascended into heaven. Now remember, he gave them the great commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And behold, I am with you until the end of the age. That's Matthew chapter 28. And then Jesus ascends to heaven in Acts chapter 1, and, and the power from on high, the Holy Spirit comes down upon his followers. And Peter gives this incredible sermon. All of the Jews and a bunch of Gentiles are gathered here in Jerusalem, and they're, they're, they're all confused about who Jesus is. And, and this man came, and he claimed to be God, and he did amazing miracles. And, and he said that anyone would follow after him would have eternal life. But then this guy was crucified. He, he said he was God, but he was killed. How does God get killed? And now there's reports and claims that his body is missing, that, that he has risen from the dead. And so people are confused. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus do? Was he really the Messiah, the Son of God? And did he really overcome sin and death in the grave? And so Peter stands up in this assembly and he gives this incredible sermon about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And then it's summarized here in verse 36. It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, the him there is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So they're all gathered, and, and, and the reality is that they had crucified Jesus because they thought he was a false Messiah, but now there's the report that he has overcome sin and death in the grave, and, and his body can't be found, and he's, they, they saw him walking among them after they watched him die on the cross, and, and, and so they're wondering, who is this man? And Peter says that he, in fact, is Lord and Christ. 
And it goes on in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That means that they, they were convinced, they were, con- they were convicted about their sin of crucifying Christ, and they were convinced that in fact he was the Son of God. And Peter said to the rest of the apostles, and they said to, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so there's this response to who Jesus is. We see here in Acts chapter 2 that they're being baptized, and and Peter's call for them to be baptized or to be dunked or submerged in the water was this response to their belief that Jesus actually lived a perfect life, that he died a sinner's death, that he was buried and he, in fact, overcame sin and death in the grave. Verse 37 there is key. Verse 36, Peter summarizes the gospel that Jesus, in fact, is Lord in Christ. And then they're cut to the hearts. They believe. There's something in them that, that they grasp as much as a human mind can, that, that Jesus is the Son of God and he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only one through whom I can be saved. And, and so they're thinking, what do I do now that I understand this truth? This is how it works for any of us when we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. It's like we, we become made aware of our sin and our downfall and our inability to save ourselves. And we say, what do we do? And somebody guides us, or the Holy Spirit prompts us, or the Word prompts us to to repent and surrender our life to Jesus. That's what they do. What should we do? We're convinced that we're sinners, that he's a Savior, so now what do we do? How do we make a connection between a sinner and a Savior? And Peter says, repent. That's the connection between a sinner and a Savior. That's turning from faulty thinking that, that I'm in charge of my own life. I can do it my own way. I know what's right and good and best. It's turning from that and saying, I don't know, but God does, and he has sent his son Jesus to live the life that I can't, die the death that I should, and I will surrender my life to him. That's repentance. Peter calls him to repent. And then he says, and be baptized. Because baptism is a sign of this repentance. It's a visible demonstration to God's followers, to those who are in Jesus Christ, that we, in fact, are made new. And so he says, in response to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, we repent and we're baptized. That's why we baptize. It's a sign of our repentance. And then flip with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verse 35 through 38. If you want to read this whole thing in context, you can later, starting in verse 26, and read through this entire section. But I'm going to pick it up in verse 35. And in a little bit of context here, let me summarize this for you. Philip is a follower of Jesus, and he's speaking with an Ethiopian eunuch. We're just going to refer to him as the Ethiopian, so parents don't have to explain to their kids what eunuchs are. Although now you're going to have to. Good luck, parents. Okay, so Philip is, is in conversation with this man from Ethiopia. Pick it up in verse 35. Actually, 34. And the, and the Ethiopian, see what I did there? I'm helping you, parents. And the Ethiopian said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? And, and so this Ethiopian is wondering, they're having this conversation about the Messiah, about the sent one, and this Ethiopian is curious about Jesus. Who is Jesus? What's he the son of God? What's his identity? Who is this man? In verse 35, 
Then Philip opened his mouth and began with the scriptures, and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. So Philip, a follower of Jesus, explains the gospel, the good news of Jesus to this man from Ethiopia. This is who Jesus is. This is how he lived. This is how he died. This is how he overcame sin and death and the grave. He's the Messiah, the promised one, the Savior of the world. Philip, using the scriptures, explains to the man from Ethiopia who Jesus is. Then look at verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the Ethiopian said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariots to stop, and they went down to the water, Philip and the Ethiopian, and he baptized him. Isn't that amazing? It's this response to who Jesus is. There's this evangelistic conversation going on between Philip and this man from Ethiopia, and and Philip explains to the man from Ethiopia who Jesus is, and he clearly believes in this Jesus. And as they're going, it's like the Holy Spirit prompted him, and he had probably heard the report of the first church people being baptized as they believed in Jesus, and his response is instant. He said, see, here's water. I believe Jesus really is the Son of God. Jesus overcame sin and death in the grave in my place on my, beh- my behalf. There's water. What prevents me from being baptized? It's just this eager response that he has to who Jesus is. It's not calculated. It's not like, well, let's do 15 years of discipleship classes to see if you're really a Christian, if you really believe who Jesus is, and then after that, we'll baptize you. He's saying, I believe in Jesus. I want to do everything that he's commanded me to do. And in Matthew chapter 28, he commanded his followers to be baptized. This is amazing. This is a person who finds a new faith in Christ saying, I want to be baptized. I want to be submerged and immersed in the water. And you'll see the mode of baptism here is obvious. They stopped the chariot. They went down to the water, Philip and the Ethiopian, and he baptized him. He immersed him. He submerged him. The word baptism in Greek means to immerse. So Philip dunks the Ethiopian in water as a sign of new life in obedience to Jesus, in response to his newfound faith. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. We're not going to get into what that means. It's just so ominous. Carried him away, and he went on his way rejoicing. And so God just used this moment. Philip, and, and sometimes we'll be like, well, we need to make sure that, that people are baptized in the right context and after the right proof. And some of you have been around this. I, I'm a parent of little children. And I'm wrestling through when do I baptize them and how do I baptize them since we practice believer's baptism which comes from these texts, because we see people who are consciously aware of and able to make a profession of faith in Jesus, those are the people who are being baptized. And if you believe in infant baptism as a sign of the covenant of God, you are welcome here. The free church, one of the things I love about our denomination is we don't draw a line on that. We, we don't command that you're baptized as a conscious, professing believer to be a member here. You're welcome into membership if you've been baptized as an infant and that's been confirmed and you professed your faith in Jesus. But at our church, our practice is to baptize conscious believers because that's what we see here in the scriptures. And it's this immediate response to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and this eagerness to obey his commands. We see that in the Ethiopian. And we see that Philip didn't have a long-standing relationship with the Ethiopian. He wasn't, he wasn't like this guy's pastor for 15 years, and he could say, I, 
I can verify that his faith is genuine because I've watched him for 15 years live out his faith and he, and he, can, he can quote all the right theologians and, and he knows all the right Bible verses. No, it was just this encounter from the Holy Spirit and the man said, I believe there's water. I want to be baptized. Look at that amazing instant obedience. And so that's what's happening here in this text. Baptism is done by immersing or dunking professing believers into water as a response to belief in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. It's a defining moment to declare a life-changing reality. That's what we're seeing here throughout the book of Acts. And then lastly, baptism is done as a sign of our union with Jesus. And this is what Romans 6, 1 through 11 is profoundly and powerfully teaching us. Romans 6, chapter 1 through 11. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound. And this is coming out of Romans chapter 5 where the Apostle Paul is writing about Jesus being the new Adam, the better Adam. The first Adam sinned and he failed and we're born into him and so we have original sin. We are totally depraved and we choose sin ourselves and, and all of mankind is distorted. All of the sin, all of, all of what we experience in this life that isn't of God is a result of Adam's sin and our own sin. And in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is making the point that Jesus came to restore and redeem mankind, that he came to be the perfect man, to be our redeemer, to stand in our place. And people are pushing back against the message of grace because they think if we say that we are saved by Jesus and not our works, if, if we teach that Jesus is all we need for salvation and we don't have to do good deeds, then people are going to say they believe in Jesus and do whatever they want. And Paul is addressing that. So in verse six, chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? He's saying some people are going to take advantage of God's grace. But he says in verse 2, By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Here's, he's He's leading us towards this powerful imagery of baptism in our union with Christ. If we're dead to sin, we, we don't cozy up with sin and, and become comfortable with sin and continue to sin. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into life in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like him, like his. So what Paul is saying here is that baptism is the sign that we are wrapped up with Christ, that we are on the team, that our position is secure, that, that God sees us in a more favorable light than we see ourselves. We've been united with Christ. We have union with him. It's interesting, in the scriptures, we're only referred to as Christians three times. A Christian means a follower of Christ, so one, one who follows the way, or Jesus. And, and the word disciple is used over and over again in the Gospels. It means a follower or apprentice of Jesus, and Jesus commissioned us to go and make disciples, so our commission is to go and make more followers of Christ. But those terms are used less and less throughout the New Testament after the Gospels, Christian and, and disciple. And more and more, this term of in Christ is used. Three times, New, the New Testament refers to us as Christians. Over 200 times does it refer to us as being in Christ, or Christ being in us. 
See, the profound reality that baptism communicates to the world and that is true of believers is that we aren't just dragging behind Jesus trying to do what he did. Yes, that's part of the Christian life, that we apprentice Jesus, that we follow him, that, that, that we, through the power of his Holy Spirit, do what he has done. But the more profound reality for the Christian is that we are in Christ. Not that he's walking out in front of us and we're lagging behind. It's that he's actually in us. In this, in this mysterious, supernatural way, the Holy Spirit has redeemed us and made us new and regenerated us and filled us and he indwells us and we are in Christ and Christ is in us, the hope of glory. That is the profound reality of the New Testament church. It, it's not that when you live a good Christian life, when you do your devotions right, when you, when you repent the right way, when you sing the right songs in the right ways, or when you attend the right church that believes the right truths, or when you cross off your theological T's and dot your theological I's, or, or when you do baptism the right way versus the wrong way, that then you're saved. No, the reality of the New Testament is that if you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, he is in you and you are in him. You are made new. You have been united to him forever. And so baptism is simply a defining moment of this powerful, supernatural reality that you are united with Christ. Verse 4, it says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Baptism is a declaration to the world that God has welcomed us onto his team. And he says we're in the family, that we're members of the club. Like, like my coach looked at me that day and said, you're my shortstop. I started to grow into that identity. God looks at you through the life of Jesus, and he says, you're my son, you're my daughter, you're united with me forever, and nothing can change that. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, baptism is a sign that you are united with Jesus. It's that defining moment that you can look back to, and when the enemy haunts you, and tempts you, and lies to you, and when you give in to those temptations, and, and when your flesh is weak, and when you waver, when your devotional life is, is stagnant, and when you get confused, if you have been baptized into Christ, that's the defining moment of this life-changing reality that you can say, no, I am in Christ, and Christ is in me, and nobody can snatch me out of his hand. That's why we get baptized, church. It's a sign of that reality. And whether you've been baptized or not, if you believe in Jesus, this is true for you. Baptism is merely a celebration of that. And so we're going to do that next week with 10 of our brothers and sisters, and we're going to celebrate hard with them, and it's going to be an incredible sign of this powerful reality that we are united with Christ. But for all of, this, all of us this morning, regardless of whether you've been baptized, whether you're going to be baptized, I want you to know that if you're in Christ, nothing can snatch you out of his hand. He has paid the penalty for your sin in your place on your behalf and you have been united with him through repentance. He's done the work, you've turned, you've surrendered yourself to him and you have a new life. And so come next Sunday and celebrate that with us. But this morning, I want to celebrate that with communion. See, Jesus really gave us two signs 
to remind us of our union with him because he knows how our, how our thoughts are, are, are questionable and our emotions are weak and our flesh is weak and that in moments of doubt, in moments of fear, in moments of failure, we become insecure. Just like I did when after that game where I made five errors and I was too insecure, I doubted myself. I thought, I can't play shortstop. I have to move over to the secondary position, second base, where the, I shouldn't say the lesser guys play, but it's just... You get a few less balls hit to you, so the chances for error are smaller. And so in that moment, my coach said, I don't, I don't care what you think about yourself. You're my guy for this position, and someday you're going to step into that position. And that's how God looks at us. That despite your weak flesh and your fears and your doubts and your insecurities, if you have been united with Christ, God looks at you and says, your position on this team in my family is secure, whether you feel like it is or not. And I've given you two signs for that. Baptism, being buried with Christ and raised to new life with him, and communion. So as we take communion this morning, as you, as you eat the bread, which symbolizes his body broken for you, and as you drink the cup, which reminds us that his blood was shed for us, let that be a visible reminder that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. We don't believe these elements turn into the actual body and blood of Christ, but they represent his body and blood. And how cool that we can eat this and drink this as a reminder that, that Christ, we, we symbolically take him in with eating and drinking, right? But spiritually, he's already in us, the hope of glory. We've been united with him forever, now and for all of eternity. So let's celebrate that with communion this morning, church. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, that you lived the perfect life, that you died the sacrificial death in our place, on our behalf, that in spite of our weak flesh and our, and our fearful doubts and our confused minds, that if we are in you, our salvation and our hope isn't contingent on us. It's secure in you. So I pray this morning that as we take communion that we would be reminded of who we are. That we are sons and daughters of the living God. That you have called us into your family. That you have given us a new nature and a new name. And that we've been united with you. I pray that we would even feel that. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would cause us to feel that union supernaturally this morning as we take communion and as we praise you with the family. Whatever that would look like, help us to experience our union with you this morning for your glory, for our good, and for the advancement of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.